Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to our conference and welcome to Oxford. Um, we have participants who have traveled to us from North America, South America, Australia, and from a couple of European destinations, and I, um, I'm glad you've made it, despite the not-so-ideal weather conditions. I'm aware that some of you have been forced into delays, and, uh, but I'm glad you've made it. And I hope uh, that the two following days will prove worth of any obstacles that you've encountered on your way to Oxford. Um, over the last year, I've attended a couple of workshops related to neuroscience and uh, the pot potential social, ethical, and political implications of that. And I've benefited greatly from the discussions at those occasions, and uh, we want to add today to the discussion and uh, probably slightly accentuate one particular area, which is um, the increasing commercialization of neuroscience and potential products, services, and new industries that are growing as a result of that. And... Um, as the strong response to our call for papers um, has indicated, this increasing social, uh, commercialization of neuroscience is also an issue that many of the presenters with the backgrounds in sociology, STS, anthropology, philosophy, ethics, and also neuroscience, psychology, and many other disciplines uh, are greatly interested in, and I very much look forward to your talks today and tomorrow. And uh, we will cover areas such as cognitive enhancement, neuroeconomics, and uh, the uptake of neuroscience and law and policy. Um, before I introduce Steve, who will speak next, I quickly also want to um, say a few housekeeping things and related matters. So I should make you aware of the fire exits which are here. If there's a constant ringing sound, noise, keep, leave the building and please gather in front of the building. <laughs> um, then all of you should have received a detailed conference program. Uh, this is here. And uh, I'd like to draw your attention to page 41 for finding your way around this building. It's the floor plan of the side business school because we will have parallel sessions. Sessions will take place here, also in seminar room A and Andrew Cormack room. Um, I invite you to follow our INSYS brains, uh, Malte, Lucy, and Chris. You'll find uh, those wearing yellow-green badges. They know their ways around. I'm just pointing out Malte, who's over there. <laughs> And, of course, Esther and me. But basically, after the session, if you want to go to those seminar rooms, you head towards the entrance hall, and there'll be pointers to the sessions. Um, on page 43, uh, we have a map of Oxford so that you can find your way to the conference dinner tonight if you want to join us and if you have signed up. If you haven't signed up, you can still do so, but you have to do it over the lunch break. And please do so with Esther, who will be at the registration desk. And um, those of you who don't want to follow a map, rather a person, I'll be waiting in the entrance hall at um, 10 past 7, and then we can go to the Oriel College together. A nice stroll through the city, although it's cold, I know. And um, last but not least, I 
also wanted to mention that the seating capacity in Andrew Cormack room is limited to 30 people. So if you intend to go to that session, I'd ask you to try and make your way quickly. And um, I will now invite Steve Burga to give a welcome note and introduce us to the conference. It's a great pleasure to introduce you, Steve. Well, let me repeat that um, uh, welcome, very warm welcome to you. It's, uh, it's fantastic to have uh, so many people and so many new faces from so many different places and, and so many different disciplines too. Um, and uh, thanks also to our sponsors who are represented uh, through their logos in various ways uh, on the slide before you. And my task is simply to um, uh, introduce the conference uh, but I'll do so by trying to give you a flavour in particular of, of course, some of the issues and uh, problems and challenges which um, face us in particular in some of the work um, that we've been doing. Uh, but try and use those to uh, adduce some general questions, uh, issues about how we study uh, this thing um, called the brain. So, um, welcome to Neurosociety. Uh, Sabina Masson, I think she's not here yet. Going to, oh, she is. I'm going to steal your um, uh, now legendary introduction to another brain workshop and say, um, welcome to your brains. Um, and uh, this is how uh, we know we are continually thinking of ourselves as, in fact, um, our brains. Um, I'm going to talk about the figure of the neuro, I'm going to talk about uh, particular work that Tanya and I have been doing, uh, starting to do on neuromarketing. And I can propose that something that's very exciting and interesting about the figure of the neuro is its capacity for what we call revelatory irony. And I'm intrigued to know to the extent to which that chimes or makes any sense in all the different areas of study of neuro um, which you are, are involved in. And finally, I want to uh, bring, back, bring us back to some questions and issues about how to study the neurosociety in the first place. So let's start with this whole business um, of the neuro. What we see is an extraordinary rise to prominence in quite a short time of the whole figure of the brain we have seen quite unprecedented advances in the neurosciences, things like psychopharmacology, neurology, behavioral genetics, and so on, all those very much in the ascendance. And alongside that, we can say, we have seen the emergence of the brain industry. And what that means in particular is the commercial development and application of new technologies, new neurotechnologies. In particular, we think of areas like and neuroeconomics and neuromarketing. And of course, uh, as we're all aware, um, all that has really interesting and important social, legal, and ethical implications. The proliferation of this prefix, the neuro, is quite, quite striking. So we have um, neuroscience, of course, 
neuromarketing, neuroeconomics, neuroleadership, neuropolitics. And I learned last night for the first time, where's Daniel? Neuro kitchen design. <laughs> I kid you not. Sorry, this is not Daniel's specialty. He, he, he just pointed out the, the huge industry that is behind the design of kitchens in relation to the ways in which those designs resonate with the structure of the brain of the kitchen user. Um, and probably my favourite neuro-literary criticism. In April, the Guardian newspaper carried an article about neuro-literary criticism. This is the study of how great writing affects the hard wiring in our heads. Uh, and we'll come back to that. You know, certain brains respond to the classics in literature and others are incapable of doing so. Um, we see, of course, on the back of that, a whole raft of interesting consumer products. One of my favourite lines is the uh, drinks company that have a whole line in neuro drinks. Uh, you probably know all about this. Uh, Neurosonic, and the different varieties of the drink. Neurosonic, Neurotrim for slimmers. Neurosleep, um, which uh, gets you to sleep quickly. Uh, Neurosun, Neuroaqua, Neurobliss, Neurosport, and Neurogasm. Um, there's a picture of the Neurogasm drink. Passion in every bottle. Um, <laughs> this um, attempts to promote sexual well-being. Neurogasm. And um, further evidence of the proliferation and, and widespread uh, dissemination of the notion of the neuro um, is that, of course, the idea of the neuro, the neuro has now become part of one's own self-identity and the presentation of self. So frequently, increasingly, you see uh, with people's um, CVs, uh, online CVs and so on, um, what you find is that included in, in the CV, is a bit about the CV, bit about my family and a bit about the inside of my brain and um, so this is taken from an online CV uh, so the whole identification self-identification the presentation of oneself also involves um, uh, the presentation of one's brain does anyone recognize this one <laughs> no, no I can't remember whose it is either all right so and I think this proliferation of, of the prefix um, uh, explosion of the neuro uh, compares very interestingly with previous um, uh, prefix explosions like E, electronic, virtual, remote, distance, and I. And we've seen that those apply to a vast range of activities and institutions. Um, so you talk about not just mail, but email, not just society, but virtual society, remote banking, distance learning, the iPod, the iPhone, the iPad, and so on. And, and there's an interesting conjunction of the pre prefixes with um, other kinds of activities. Um, and so, more or less, you can pick um, any one from the left-hand column and apply it to any institution in the right-hand column, and you have uh, a proposal for a new way of doing things. And I'm, I'm suggesting that the application of the neuro prefix, something very similar is happening there. Uh, similarly, with activities, you can apply pretty much anyone from the left-hand list to pretty much anyone from the right-hand list. Just try it a bit. Go on. See what you come up with. And um, you get a claim to a often radically new way of doing the thing on the right-hand side. Okay. So, 
questions, and uh, this is what gives rise to the, the, this whole proliferation, to give rise to the subtitle of our conference, um, not uh, what is it with the brain these days, but what is it with the brain these days? Uh, and we don't ask that in uh, just a joking way. I mean, how have we got into a situation where the brain is entirely uh, dominant in, in such a way? So some interesting questions you follow. You know, what accounts for this proliferation? What, if any, are the limits of the proliferation of neuro? Are there any activities, institutions, uh, practices, which in principle cannot become neuro practices? Is there anything to which we could not apply the prefix? And I think that's quite an interesting question. And even more interesting, it seems to me, how and when will the prefix disappear? You know, a lot of the work that's been going on, I think, is really good at trying to understand the sorts of structures and processes and assumptions which hold the neuro in place um, as an identifier. Uh, there's another question, an important question to ask, is uh, when will it disappear? What will cause those structures um, to break down such that the neuro uh, falls out of fashion, is taken over by some other... Um, some, some other cause, and so on. Okay, so I'm going to talk a bit about neuromarketing and how that um, relates to some of those issues I've talked about so far. And um, neuromarketing, here is a picture of a brain being confronted um, by, um, on the one hand, Doritos, on the other hand, emerald nuts, and you see that the brain responds differently to those two snack products. Um, neuromarketing uses brain imaging technologies, to measure and manage consumers' neuronal responses to marketing activities. And we know that the brain imaging technologies which are used under this rubric include the vast range of different ways of um, accessing, measuring, recording, representing the brain. Neuromarketing promises to give us detailed knowledge about consumer preferences. It promises that we can, by using it we can avoid the problems of relying upon consumer self-reports and that it can reduce the failure of new products. It's controversial. It's um, controversial in terms of its ethics, in terms of its media presence. There are questions about its reliability. It's very difficult to determine the extent of the usage of neuromarketing. Um, most major organizations are sometimes quite coy about how much they're using it, uh, and, and, uh, at the moment anyway. And interestingly, as this bandwagon develops, there's an increasing range of techniques which are subsumed under the title neuromarketing. So some old marketing techniques and technologies like eye tracking, like pupil dilation, now re-emerge as part of neuromarketing. And, of course, that means that the skill sets associated with those techniques once again find a currency um, under the new rubric um, of, of, of neuromarketing. So... Um, Brains are placed in fMRI scanners or with uh, using EEG caps, and um, it's a question, as we all know, of measuring which uh, areas of the brain are active with specific tasks, and the extent of brain activity is inferred from changes in blood flow in the brain. And something we kind of interesting to keep reminding myself, anyway, is that these original measurements, uh, the information is numerical, and the numerical measurements are translated into a visual representation. And it's then that this 
very curious metaphor, the brain lights up, comes into play. And I don't know, somebody can probably tell me, is there any, any interesting work on who chose the colours for which bits of brain activity, such that it made sense to use the metaphor, the brain lights up? And I think, you know, that's quite an interesting bit of, little bit of historical digging um, which we could do. What is the origin of that particular convention um, of um, a visual representation of the brain? Picture of the fMRA. Be more specific, take the example of advertising effectiveness. Um, neuromarketers want to know about how effective adverts are, especially given very major recent changes in how media is consumed. They want to know how you place adverts successfully um, um, on, on the TV and how much you could charge to have an advert um, in your program. And neuro, this, 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 this part of neuromarketing measures the extent to which adverts are encoded, understood, and liked. And pricing is then based on advertising effectiveness, supported by what's called objective neurological evidence. So um, this matters because it's big money, big business. In the Super Bowl ads in 2009, you could pay $2.6 million for, 30, for a 30-second advert slot. People are interested and they need to know, does it work? And neuromarketers offer a way of um, uh, responding to that uh, question. Let me, let me give you the example of the Coke heist advert. I'd like you to watch this, please, and think about your reaction to this advert for which somebody has paid $2.6 million. So think, think about it for a minute. Which parts of that advert excited you? Which bits did you like best? Uh, which uh, really got you going? At what point did you decide you had to rush out and buy Coke right during that? Um, and of course, we could ask you, and uh, you might tell us one thing or another, but how reliable would that be? Instead, um, we do a neuromarketing analysis of your response to the advert. And here's uh, some pages from uh, uh, um, one of the companies that does this, Sands Research, and describes the methods of analyzing the reaction to the advert. Participants use the TVCMs, television commercial messages, individually in a relaxed living room type setting and sitting in a comfortable lounge chair. And, and you know, I give some sort of descriptions of the methods and how they've gone through there. Um, they're presented in the same sequence as presented on the, on the television. So you had sort of, you know, and a very interesting kind of gestures to uh, natural settings where you, you put the brain in a place which would be very similar to the natural setting of watching the TV um, Super Bowl in order to see um, how it would um, respond. And I don't know what you thought was going on in that advert, but I can now show you what your, how your brain was responding. This is the same advertisement but now with a representation of the brain, six sections of one brain um, lighting up in, in, in different ways in response to different parts of the advert um, as we go through. So now you see what was actually happening when you were watching, when you, when you were watching the advert, right. And the um, SANS research 
produce uh, an analysis of the responses, the brain's responses to the advert, and the various descriptions of the importance of the initial um, engagement of the brain, the point where the brain decides whether or not to attend to the advert, um, and various discussions of the onset spike, which are important. And then there is um, a score, an overall score, is produced for the, for the advertisement, the NEF, the neuro-engagement factor, and, <laughs> and the Coke Heist advert scores 4.24. And uh, the comments are strong start, temporal and frontal activation throughout, music and visuals create a building response, the product is represented in the largest peaks, strong attention until the very end uh, off spot. Okay, so what's, what's sort of going on with this stuff? Well, I think it's interesting to think of these whole technologies, the neuromarketing in this particular case, as being examples of what we are tending to call revelatory irony. And this is, um, neuromarketing technologies are one of a class of other kinds of technology which have uh, been spoken about in very interesting ways um, recently. Um, they are technologies for materialising or provoking to appearance underlying phenomena. So Sini Vikelso has written about um, psychotherapy and talks about the importance of Sigmund Freud's couch as a material artifact that enables the unconscious to become a tangible, tangible phenomenon. So the technology is then said to be able to reveal the source and nature of anxiety, depression, and so on. Or Andy Barmer has talked very interestingly about the polygraph, and we'll talk again a bit about polygraph, is that right? As a confessional technology, and it is a technology which attempts to enact who or what knows the truth, and in particular in those particular traditions where we imagine that the person who knows the truth or the thing that knows the truth is God, and very interestingly, the polygraph plays into versions of the truth being out there, and in particular, the truth being prepotent. That is, that the truth is the thing that will be revealed when all attempts to conceal and cover up and forget and so on are stripped away. There lies the truth beneath everything else. So the truth is enacted through the polygraph in that way. Um, similarly, uh, another interesting technology of revelatory irony. Um, it's been spoken about by Javier, Javier Lazon, who's talked about focus groups as being a pervasive technology of social investigation. And uh, Javier uh, shows how group dynamics are used to bring into existence relevant individual opinions. Again, the underlying, um, uh, the underlying uh, entity which needs to be teased out. Group moderators use technical and managerial skills to, quote, lead the focus group to a useful outcome of which their subjects are ignorant. Opinions, Javier says, points out, are not unproblematic objects. There's much work needed to regulate, control, encourage the emergence of individual opinions. So another example, it seems to me, of a revelatory technology which reinforces the idea that there is something underneath, below and beyond the mere knowing subject. So what the effect of these technologies is that they tend to background the prominence of the knowing subject. They propose that they can reveal what is hidden, especially what the subject doesn't know or can't know or refuses to reveal. And in particular, this is very much in line with that mode of STS reasoning that um, um, the technologies are performative. That is, 
they enact or constitute the hidden underneath, the hidden motive, the hidden uh, uh, reason, and so on, uh, rather than just uh, simply revealing it. Now, I like this cartoon especially, which, which Tanya found for me, because it, um, it pokes fun at that capacity for revelatory irony. Um, after all, it suggests, you know, your car keys are under the sofa and you like to wear women's clothes, uh, women's shoes, by, why, by looking at the screen. You can see that, uh, see that from the brain. And I think, I think it's, a, it's, it's a nice satire on, do we really find stuff out which we didn't know before? Um, and uh, could, could it not be found out in another way? So, I think some of this work suggests, and again, I'm keen to know how it dovetails with other people's ongoing work here, that the proliferating power of the prefix neuro arises from its use as a device for revelatory irony. And that irony reaffirms the integrity of the root dualism between what's said and what's meant, between one's stated opinion and one's actual motive, and so on. Uh, and it also reaffirms the integrity of the idea of the documentary method of interpretation. So the problem and its irony enacts key entities in this and their accountability relationships, including the unknowing, unreliable consumer. So you start with a consumer, you make the assertion that the consumer doesn't know uh, or can't tell as much as, um, as much as he or she knows, and you reinforce that through the use of the technologies. You reinforce the idea or enact the idea of the brain as the locus of the hidden true knowledge. And in particular, you bring into play various kinds of technical devices and their expert operators uh, which can reveal this knowledge. So neuromarketing in this way backgrounds the knowing subject. It reaffirms the consumer as being unaware of their true preferences. And the accountability for knowing the consumer preferences passes to the technology and its operatives and away from the consumer. Interesting to sort of apply that idea to neurosocial science. Imagine the Guardian coverage on the 11th of April 2015. The study, the neurosocial science, it will be said, perhaps, the study of how social science affects the hard wiring in our heads, the ways in which the brain responds to social science arguments. And I think it's, you know, it's not, not, entirely, um, um, not entirely jocular to think what it would take to establish neurosocial science. We'd need a very interesting kind of ontological politics to enact the assemblage of all the relevant entities to hold such a project in place. Readers of social, we'd need readers of social science who could not be relied upon to articulate whether or not they actually believe in or like social science. Should be fairly easy. We need audiences who do not know their own motives for believing or liking or disliking social science. Again, quite easy, I suppose. And we need technical devices for revealing social science relevant regions of the brain and uh, determining uh, what audiences uh, really think about the social science that they're being presented with. Now, it's at this point that we'd really hope to have a kind of live demo um, with... Um, scans of brains in the audiences responding to this talk. Um, but uh, for all sorts of interesting reasons, it's, it turned out not to be quite possible um, to do this. Okay, so given those sorts of um, 
uh, emphases, those sorts of questions, those sorts of issues? Um, what sorts of questions come up when we ask about studying um, neurosociety? Well, in our call for papers, we talked about um, a number of fairly uh, uh, important questions, but in a way fairly straightforward. Um, the rise of the international neuro industry, which business practices are engaged in this and why, which companies are taking the lead, how are policymakers and industry groups lobbying to change regulatory barriers, how does the figure of the brain organize scholarly and commercial thinking, can the neurosciences generate beneficial treatment of neurological and, and psych psychiatric disorders? If that's the case, will there be all the familiar problems of access to these novel uh, biomedical technologies? Similarly, there are obvious and interesting ethical and social implications. Neuroeconomics and neuromarketing are set to revolutionize things like decision-making, marketing, consumer choice. But what's the effects of that? Uh, what's the effects of the rise and pervasiveness of brand and advertising cultures on consumer autonomy? What effects of the increasing adoption of this reductive and deterministic models of human behavior and decision-making in general? You know, why is this form of reductionism so, uh, so popular, so well taken up right now? What are the effects of neurothinking on the social sciences and the humanities? All those are you know, sort of big questions, I think really important ones for us uh, as a community um, to address. Now, I think there's some issues here and um, interesting issues for us also in this conference. How do we actually go about studying neurosociety? Um, we've got a very, very interdisciplinary mix of people interested in these phenomena and very, very interdisciplinary mix of people um, here at the conference today. Um, there's a sense in which what's interesting about it is, of course, the brain brings us together. Uh, just, just like you said in STS, the, the technology brings us together. The brain, then, is a very interesting kind of boundary object. It enables, potentially, discussions across different disciplinary fields. But how are we going to manage those, and how, 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 how good are we at being um, interdisciplinary? What kinds of social science sensibilities are needed to do this? Um, well, I think it's quite important that one adopts an analytic or critical perspective, and in particular maintains some ethnographic distance from um, uh, from the, the neuro uh, activities that one's studying. Um, it's, it's, it's quite interesting, I think, that frequently when talking about these kinds of studies that we're doing, um, I've had the experience that uh, quite a few people um, don't get the distance. So if you say, I'm doing a social science study of neuromarketing, and then talk a bit about neuromarketing, sometimes, quite often, the question comes back, how many subjects did you use? Uh, and then you then have to say, no, no, I'm not doing the neuromarketing. I'm doing the social science of neuromarketing, analytic distance. And it's very, and I, and I wonder whether this particular phenomenon, the neuro stuff, is more difficult to see the analytic distance uh, or to yield an analytic distance, put it the other way around. Is it something about neuro stuff that we have to work much harder than with a lot of other phenomena? to remain distant, to remain sceptical, to remain um, ethnographic. Clearly, we need to be both close to and distant from neuroscience in action at the same time. That's a familiar 
anthropological struggle uh, is nonetheless um, a difficult one and one we need to work out um, very hard. What would it look like to um, hold this conference in a neuro society? Well, some would say, well, we're already in a neuro society. But um, that sort of question, I think, is quite interesting because it, it raises the issue of do our ways of studying neuro stuff, are they likely to change with the way we feel about the, what we find out about, the, what we're exposed to in terms of um, neuro thinking? So how to engage with neuro technologies, I think, is still very much an open question. Uh, and, and what part they play in our, in our studies, in our analyses, I think is something still to be very much resolved. And, of course, as I mentioned earlier, um, it seems almost obvious that if one is dealing with the claim that individuals' responses to products, arguments, activities can be located in the brain then we might try that reflexive step and say, so, what is the brain's response to our own arguments? Um, and uh, as I said, we, we flirted with the idea of trying to get um, a demo uh, going in this conference. Um, and we were told, for example, that it would be possible, it wouldn't be possible to get an fMRI machine in the lecture theatre, but it might be possible to get um, EEG caps and to um, have various members of the audience wearing the caps and their brains displayed um, to the side of the, the, the slides so that we could see how their brains were responding to the arguments um, as we go along. Um, so we looked into that possibility, and um, the first groups of people that we approached to do that said that they couldn't possibly do it like that because it wasn't a controlled laboratory condition. And... Um, so, you know, the first insight is, although we'd assume these technologies are pretty transportable, actually the technologies only work in specific, well-organized, regulated contexts, right? So, you know, against our expectation. Um, then there was discussion of, well, which groups might do it anyway? And we were referred to um, groups with foreign-sounding names and uh, general, uh, you know, disdain for, well, there's that, there are those people. I can't remember which nationality they were, just as well, I'm sure. Th those people, they might do it. So, you know, you were invited to actually engage with um, a source of expertise which is pretty much uh, looked down upon, uh, pretty much frowned upon as a, way of, as a way of getting this going. Okay, so that, that basically didn't come off. But what's interesting about it not coming off is how revealing it is of our assumptions, naively thinking that the technology would just work. We just had to get it in the, in the lecture theatre. Not so. Interesting questions about what entities are enacted or performed by neurothinking, and I've sort of hinted a bit about that already. In neuromarketing, the figure of the consumer becomes somebody quite different as a result of neuromarketing. And finally, and I think almost one of the most important questions, uh, what next? Um, it is the case, um, as I've tried to say, that neurothinking is pervasive, it's very entrenched, it's very widespread, it's very influential as a discourse, and there are certain people working very nicely on, on trying to figure out how that arises and what holds it in place. Um, but a really interesting next question is, when will it disappear? How will it disappear? Um, what will supplant the neuro? I mean, I had, I had some sort of pop discussions about um, the heart being 
recently recognised as a superior location of overall human activity than the brain. So maybe the heart's next, um, or you know, back to the heart ne next, as it were. But the conditions under which uh, the central organising figure for human behaviour changes, I think, is absolutely fascinating and extremely important. Okay, and well, I finish by saying um, welcome again. I hope you have um, a really excellent conference. We've got some fantastic papers here. I'm really looking forward to it too. And um, what next is, uh, to answer that question another way, what next is the paper sessions. So you can go to your, um, uh, uh, your chosen venue of the three um, now. Thanks very much.